Evidence mounts on the role of fish farms in the near extinction of wild salmon on the south coast of Newfoundland, but the province ponders expansion of sea-based aquaculture. I'm Glenn Wheeler, and this is Mi'kmaq Matters, a podcast about Mi'kmaq people, politics, land and water. This is episode 179. Thanks for your support via patreon.com and email transfer, bigma.matters at gmail.com. Willala. The new Liberal government of Premier Andrew Fury is picking up where the old one left off, pushing salmon aquaculture on the south coast. The province wants to expand west toward Lapoil Bay from the current concentration in Fortune Bay and Bay to Spare. No doubt efforts will be helped along by the cozy relationship between the Liberals, the aquaculture industry, and the leadership of the Maobigeg First Nation. As First Nations elsewhere in Canada have been trying and succeeding in shutting down sea-based aquaculture, Mi'kmaq bands have stuck with the industry, no more so than Miobigag. A few months ago, Miobigag received hundreds of thousands of dollars from the Atlantic Fisheries Fund to invest in the controversial industry. Meanwhile, the data are becoming ever more compelling. All signs are that the number of wild salmon goes down as sea-based aquaculture ramps up. A couple of weeks ago, we told you about the latest salmon count on the south coast. In a word, bleak. Wild salmon in Con River, in the heart of Mi'kmaq country, are on the verge of extinction. Exposure to sea lice and other parasites produced by fish farms is a factor, scientists say. This week, more on the links between fish farms and the decline of the sacred salmon. Along with sea lice, another constant of sea-based aquaculture are escaped farm salmon. Not only do the escapees compete with wild salmon for food, there's interbreeding and the mutant offspring don't survive in an environment in which they're alien. Our guest is Ian Bradbury, research scientist with the Department of Fisheries and Oceans in St. John's. So Ian, uh, I gather from reading the papers, there's quite a lot of research on the subject of, uh, of escaped salmon and hybridization in an impact on wild salmon uh, regarding the south coast of Newfoundland. It's a highly researched area. Yeah, so I mean, we have been down there working on this topic since around 2014. Uh, we had an escape event in 2013, and that was really the impetus for us to start um, sort of genetic surveys every year where we go down and we look for evidence of hybridization. So we sample juvenile salmon and we analyze a small piece of tissue to see if we can detect. Uh, hybrids in in the rivers in southern Newfoundland. Hmm. And uh, of course, uh, in the past couple of years, uh, we've seen a lot in the news about escapes, uh, escape uh, salmon on the south coast. But uh, I understand that hybridization can result from as little as one escape event. Sure. So, I mean, essentially, we're talking about interbreeding between wild uh, salmon and salmon that have escaped from the farms. So 
uh, if any individuals escape at any time and they do make it to the rivers and they can interbreed. Mm. Uh, and that's been shown from across the North Atlantic, anywhere where we have salmon aquaculture co-occurring with wild salmon, there's evidence of escapees interbreeding with wild salmon. Mm. Now, of course, uh, on uh, we in when we see something on the news, it's uh, it's a major event. But I also understand right. from uh, reading some of the papers that uh, escape events are a routine part of of aquaculture. Perhaps not in the the size that we get when there's a news story, but it's it's a, a, a I don't know if it's a daily occurrence, but a regular occurrence in uh, in uh, sea based aquaculture. I mean, that certainly seems to be the case from across the North Atlantic. In, in, in southern Newfoundland, of course, we've had maybe three larger escape events in the last seven or eight years that, that we've worked on. But outside those escape events, we sort of regularly see escape farm salmon showing up at our counting fences. Uh, with the exception of the last couple of years, we've seen them every year at the Garnish counting fence. And we regularly see evidence of sort of first-generation hybrids or those new hybrids showing up in our juvenile surveys. Mm -hmm. So it does seem that there are sort of these sort of what they call trickle losses or small-scale escapes uh, that happen sort of routinely. Mm. And do we know what causes that? Is it, I mean, I guess nothing is foolproof. Uh, maybe there's a hole in the, uh, in the side of the pen or perhaps there is something to do with water level. Um, do we know anything about that cause of these regular occurrences? Yeah, well, there's, there's been a fair amount of work done on, on trying to understand the uh, what causes escape events. And, the, and they, the causes vary, as you might expect, from storm events to predator strikes. You could have a shark uh, or uh, even just, just, just sort of user error and, and challenges with handling and that sort of thing. Um, but it, I guess it varies depending on when and where we're talking about an escape event. And um, I also uh, see that the south, the south coast of Newfoundland plus the Passamaquoddy Bay in New Brunswick have some of the highest rates of escapees in Eastern North America. I don't know if that's just because they have, that's where there are major operations or there's something more to it than that, that we're aware of. No, certainly from the, uh, the work that we've done, which has just been sort of correlating the number of escapees or the genetic interactions with the uh, exposure to the industry, it, it, it certainly seems likely that that's just a function of being in close proximity uh, to fish in cages. There could be something else, but from our work, it really looks like it's a proximity to number of fish in cages. Mm. Now, let's, uh, so let's look at what happens when there is uh, an escape event, e either a major one or some of these routine ones that we're, that we're talking about. One is that we know that the escapees can travel quite a long distance, 100 kilometers, uh, maybe even 200 kilometers. So it's not a localized event when there is an escape event. No, for sure. And I mean, our work, and there's been some tagging work done in Southern Newfoundland, which, which is where those numbers come from. So say one to 200 kilometers. But uh, in the East Atlantic, there's been uh, detections even further at marine feeding areas, hundreds of kilometers or a thousand kilometers away. So, so the, the extent of impact can be, can be significant. In, uh, in the Newfoundland context, we certainly haven't detected escapees outside uh, of Southern Newfoundland. So that seems to be, and that's where we kind of stick to that one to 200 kilometer range as, as our general envelope for uh, interactions with escape farm salmon. That seems to be well supported, both from the genetic data and from the the little bit of uh, tagging work that's been done on escapees. Mm -hmm. So let's let's look at the impact on um, on wild salmon of uh, 
of escapes and um, and hybridization. Um, I mean, I guess it's twofold. One, uh, just the fact that there are escapee, escapees have an impact on the wild salmon because they uh, perhaps they're feeding on the same uh, on the same food supply. Uh, there's a, a competition for food, etc. Uh, but uh, but then uh, when we get the uh, the hybridization, uh, we have um, perhaps more profound impacts on. Um, right on the survival of these hybrids. The hybrids don't, um, don't cope as well as wild sap. Sure, so you, you kind of have maybe two levels of effect. So the first effect that we get from escapees is that they are interbreeding with wild salmon. So those eggs or, uh, or sperm are, are not being then available to produce pure wild salmon. So, they're, so they're, there's a demographic hit right from the start, but then of, co of course, as we'd expect, wild salmon are adapted to their local environments. Wild salmon in southern Newfoundland are adapted to the flow conditions, the climate, the pathogen communities. All that uh, has evolved over uh, over significant periods of time. So um, when we have interbreeding with escapees, essentially what we're doing is we're eroding that local adaptation. We're, we're erasing some of that and replacing it with... Uh, fish that have been adapted to grow fast in culture, to grow large, to do well in tanks and cages. So what that means is that these wild populations are no longer as well adapted to wild conditions and the hybrids don't survive as well. And then we end up with not just genetic change, but demographic decline. So populations, uh, at least the experimental work and the modeling work we've done really supports the populations decline that are experiencing um, escapees and hybridization. Hmm. I mean, I guess that speaks to uh, to one of the sort of uh, knee-jerk uh, responses there are to um, to recent stories about uh, low counts in some of the salmon rivers in Newfoundland. Where people said, "Well, why don't we restock these rivers?" And, and I guess you've you've just given the answer there of why that's not feasible because salmon uh, have a um, a deep uh, connection to their to their rivers and. Um, when we're talking about salmon stocking, it's almost the same phenomenon as you're describing with the with the hybrids. In in some ways, it's a similar phenomenon. Now, of course, there are strategies with stocking that where you can try to minimize or, or maximize how uh, how closely related the individuals you're stocking with are to wild populations, and there are places where that's that seems to be done. Uh, and, and there are certainly ongoing discussions about regarding doing that, in, in, in particularly in the con system. Um, but I, I think from, an, from the aquaculture perspective, it's really an extreme case where these fish have been actually selected to be very, very different. So the, the impacts are really on a different scale. Now, uh, you mentioned con there. And of course, we had um, uh, a news story recently about uh, the, the salmon, wild salmon in Con River being near extinction as the headlines uh, said. And there's a reference into, in the literature about uh, Con. Con River is among the most studied, but I see that you haven't um, specifically located a lot of escapees in, in Con River. So what, um, how do we understand that? What seems to be uh, some inconsistency there? Yeah, so one of the challenges with understanding the impacts of escapees uh, in southern Newfoundland is that we really don't have a lot of good data on the distribution or the abundance of escapees in the wild. The only data we really have comes from, uh, well, it comes from two sources. One are, are the counting fences, which we have in, 
in a couple of sites in Beta Spare and in Garnish, but those fences are only really in place during the, uh, when the adult salmon are returning. So for three or four months in the summer, if we have escapees coming back at other times of the year, we wouldn't detect them. So, so that's a, it's a correct statement. We really haven't observed a lot of escapees showing up at the Cotton River uh, through the course of monitoring there since the late eighties. Now we have detected them, but they haven't really, uh, uh, haven't been that common. So, uh, the other source of data we do have is our genetic survey, where we survey juveniles from um, a lot of these systems. And we've done a, recently done an extensive genetic survey of the Con River, or salmon in the Con River. And we have detected evidence of interaggression, sort of interbreeding, past interbreeding, and hybridization between farm salmon and wild salmon, particularly in the mainstream or the lower stretches of the Con River system. So that really is consistent with genetic impacts. Uh, and and the hybridization within that river. And uh, I think that in uh, in the Fortune Bay Beta Spare area, probably all of the rivers are to some extent uh, impacted by escapees and uh, the, res the results of escapees, hybridization, etc. So uh, though you've not found that specific evidence um, in Con River about escapees, we know that the rivers in that area are all impacted to a greater or lesser extent by escapees. Right. So, so for, as I mentioned, we had a large escape event in 2013, uh, and which essentially doubled the number of salmon in southern Newfoundland overnight. We, from all accounts, it was around 20,000 escape farm salmon. And uh, we extensively surveyed the next year, sort of Fortune Bay and Beta Spear. Uh, and I think in 17 of the 18 rivers we surveyed, we detected evidence of hybridization. So I think it's a fair statement to say that there's evidence of genetic impacts in most of the rivers we've surveyed there. The only, the only I, I can add to that and say that we, we have subsequently detected that these impacts seem to be larger in smaller rivers. So smaller river systems where the populations are smaller tend to be much more susceptible to uh, genetic impacts, probably just because they're more easily swamped by a, 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 by a set number of escapees. So if a population has 10 or 20 or 30 anadromous fish, and we're getting that number of escapees coming in, the impacts will be much more significant. Uh, so some of the smaller systems, and, and we see evidence of this in the, in the genetic data, in some of the smaller systems now where you might have only a handful of, of anadromous uh, salmon, they seem almost entirely comprised of some version of hybrid at this point. So uh, I, I think it is widespread, but probably more significant in the smaller systems. As, as you note, uh... You know the story is somewhat advanced now. That I don't know if we can go back to uh, to turn the clock back to the beginning or not with um, with uh, the extent of hybridization that we've had. But in terms of uh, of going forward, you talk about that uh, that significant event that we had uh, a few years ago. Is there a safe rate of uh, escapees from uh, net pen aquaculture? In other words, is there you know, a proportion, a percentage, a number of, uh, of escaped farm salmon that the wild salmon ecosystem could tolerate? That's, uh, I mean, that's a question that we've been working on for the last couple of years. And to, to get at that, we've been modeling a salmon population and exposing it to different levels of escapees to see how it responds to try and understand what that threshold might be. So in this case, we have a simulation where it's a model that it does everything that a wild salmon population does. And we let escapees come in every year at different levels to see at what point do we see large genetic changes and what point do we see demographic decline. 
And what this model tells us is that once we get about above maybe 10% escapees in a given river, so if we have 10%, if we have 100 salmon in the river, if we get more than 10 escapees in that river uh, regularly, then the model's predicting demographic decline and genetic change. And that that's, uh, seems to be a reasonable number. Now, it's just a model, so it, it, uh, but it does seem well-supported. It, it's, it's a number, this 10% is being used in Norway to remove escapees and being used for spatial planning in Iceland. So there, it does seem to be uh, a reasonable and robust threshold for predicting when we might have impacts of escapees. Finally, Ian, let me ask you about another uh aspect of this uh, story about uh, impact of, uh, of aquaculture on, on uh, wild salmon. And I, I know it's distinct from hybridization, which is your area, but uh, we've also noted that there, are, there is genetic impact on wild salmon, not only from the escapees and hybridization, but exposure to parasites, um, uh, uh, diseases, uh, that in and of itself can have a genetic impact on on wild salmon, and, and what and what are the the parameters of the research in that area? Yeah, so that's that's an interesting aspect that's that's not often received a lot of attention, uh, and the idea here is that anything which causes mortality that reduces salmon populations or um, selects for different individuals, so anything that might cause selective mortality, can cause genetic change. So that. In- that includes things such as you said, competition, predation, parasites, disease transfer, anything that may modify populations by reducing the number and maybe selecting for individuals can cause genetic impacts. And there's not a lot of work done on that, but there's there's a lot of research done demonstrating demographic impacts so that sea lice or disease may cause population decline. And there's a lot of, uh, of, of genetic research would suggest that that decline may be selective. So uh, we recently published a paper suggesting that that these indirect genetic interactions, genetic interactions that occur through these other mechanisms are probably prevalent uh, and something we really need to work to understand better. Ian Bradbury, research scientist with the Department of Fisheries and Oceans in St. John's. And that's it for the program. Allison Baker is the producer of Mi'kmaq Matters. Listen to Mi'kmaq Matters wherever you get your podcasts. And please leave a review. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for the latest Mi'kmaq news and views. I'm Glenn Wheeler, Nimbus. Mi'kmaq